If you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make uh, your way in them to the book of Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18 uh, is where uh, we will be today, and if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, page 12 uh, is where you will find that. France has had its chance. In, uh, in 2006, before I was uh, in full-time vocational pastoral ministry, I was working for a missionary sending agency that's based in Kansas City. And one of the big initiatives for our organization that year was sending out a team of missionaries to help plant churches in and around the city of Paris. And part of my role with the organization was donor development. So I'd call donors, meet with donors, uh, send out lots of mailers to prospective donors that would help fund um, both these individual missionaries as well as the, the church planting work and the projects that they would be doing. And it was in the course of raising funds for this team headed to Paris that we heard those words from a potential donor. France has had its chance. Which meant, uh, really exactly what it, what it sounds like, that France had once been a nation with a thriving group of Christians, a thriving group of churches, but the majority of French men and women over the past several generations have rejected Jesus, have rejected Christianity, and it's become largely a, a post-Christian culture. But it wasn't that this donor wanted to debate the strategic value of where we should send American missionaries or, or missions funding. Uh, it's totally valid to consider the best use of time and money or how receptive French people might be to a, to a particular strategy of work. It was just straight up for this donor, France has rejected God, we shouldn't waste our time on France anymore. Now, after I recovered from like, the initial shock of, of what that felt like, uh, I came up with what I thought was going to be a game-changer idea to help our organization raise a lot of awareness and funding for this mission's work. And mind you, you'll have to, you'll have to kind of go back you know, 11 years. Um, I was a little more edgy 11 years ago. I was not like the father-of-daughter, minivan-owning, domesticated specimen that you see standing before you today. So I said to our donor development team, uh, we should totally leverage that statement. We should totally leverage that statement. We should do a big social media campaign and some billboards that say, to hellwithfrance.com. <laughs> and, you, you know, most of you have lived in this country for a long time, maybe your whole life. I'm sure you've picked, on living in this, picked up on living in this country. Uh, Americans don't necessarily like French people. And there's a history to that. You know, after the Revolutionary War, we kind of gave them the middle finger, and then we didn't really appreciate how they handled themselves in World War. There's history to this. Um, and so the thought was, well, we'll get all kinds of traffic to this website, and it would be able to talk about on this website the attitude that Americans have, even American Christians have, toward men and women in France. And then it would be able to explore and explain on this website how instead the love of Christ compels us not to give up on people, not to abandon people in their rejection of God, but to continue loving them and pursuing them with the good news of the gospel. And therefore, that's why we're now sending teams of church planners to France. Would you like to get involved in that? That was the idea. Now, needless to say, the organization did not go for that. <laughs> and 11 years later, I, you know, I can't say that I blame them. They didn't want the kind of publicity that that campaign might draw. And it was a pretty good indicator that some of that publicity was probably coming when um, I did go out and buy that URL. I owned that URL for a year. <laughs> and when I bought it, I immediately was contacted by the, the company that hosted the domain. And they said yeah, you're going to want to go ahead and spend the extra money to make this an anonymous uh, URL ownership. You don't want people knowing your name or like where you live or anything like that if you host a URL like that. 
So I share all of that with you because it brings up a really important question. That donor's comment and, and all of this brings up an important question. What is the role and the responsibility of the people of God in the world? What's the role and responsibility of the people of God in the world? Is it okay to develop a dismissive, cynical attitude toward an entire nation, toward an entire group of people? The book of Genesis, and even more specifically, the life of Abraham, speaks to that question. Because here is God, for the first time, setting apart a people for himself. And for Abraham and his descendants, we, we, we get to wrestle with that question. What is their role and responsibility in the world? If ever there were cities, if ever there were groups of people that represented rebellion against God, it would be Sodom and Gomorrah. Because ever since these events that unfold in Genesis 18 and 19, those cities become the byword. They become the epitome of a world that persists in rebellion to God. And they become an epitome of the fate of those who persist in rebellion against God. But Abraham's posture here in the second half of Genesis 18 is far from dismissive or cynical or abandoning. It's a posture of intercession, of pleading God's mercy on behalf of the world, even for a city that has done wrong by Abraham in the past. If you've been with us in this series, in Genesis 14, Abraham pursues and rescues his nephew Lot, and in the course of rescuing Lot, he also brings back Sodom's people and Sodom's possession that had been taken away by these kings from the north and from the east. But the king of Sodom disdains and disrespects Abraham in that moment. He demands things from Abraham, even though he's in no position to do so. And yet, even though they've done wrong by him, Abraham does not grow cold, does not grow calloused toward Sodom and toward its people, and he pleads with God on their behalf. And so this morning, through this text, we're going to be forced to ask ourselves, are we more like the donor who said, in essence, to hell with France, or are we more like Abraham, displaying a faith that loves the world, even for Abraham, the city of Sodom? Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. Genesis chapter 18, I'll start in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord, still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, will you sweep them away? Will you, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of, of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. 
He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, you have spoken to us by your Son. Let your written word now be spoken and heard by each of us. And give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. May we all be taught by you through your powerful word, and we pray that you would help us to bring every thought captive to obeying Christ to the glory of your name. Amen. As we contemplate this faith that loves the world, uh, we'll consider two things, two aspects of what we see play out in this text. First, that God calls upon Abraham, and second, that Abraham calls upon God. So first, let's talk about how God calls upon Abraham. If you're familiar with with this passage or, or, or Abraham's life, what we often remember about this episode is usually that Abraham is the one pleading with God, negotiating with God. But it's important to see here, before Abraham calls upon God, God calls upon Abraham. These three men, one of whom is God himself in some kind of embodied form, have just received uh, Abraham and Sarah's hospitality. We talked about that last week. And they set out then toward Sodom. And as this aside, a, a little soliloquy, God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And he goes on to reiterate then who Abraham is. He's the first of God's chosen people. Uh, He'll become a great and mighty nation. He's going to be the father of the nation through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And here's what that means as we step back and, and consider this. It's a unique and distinct privilege to be set apart as the people of God. And part of that privilege is that you get an insider scoop on the story of the world. You get to know something of what God is up to. But with that privilege of knowing something of what God is up to comes the responsibility to act and to respond accordingly. And there are a couple ways that that gets fleshed out in Genesis chapter 18. Presence and prayer. So for one, verse 19, God is calling upon Abraham and his descendants to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So when God chooses Abraham and his descendants, it's not like Dr. Seuss's book, The Star-Bellied Sneetches, where like some have stars on their belly and some don't, and it's just a distinction for the sake of a distinction. When God chooses a people and sets them apart, it's so that they will display a distinct character, a distinct presence in the world. It's a life of righteousness, of holiness or goodness according to the standards of God himself. It's a life of justice, one that upholds what is right and what is wrong and restores brokenness by combating oppression and by caring for the oppressed. So it's also, it's a call to presence. It's also a call to prayer. And in verse, in verse 20, this soliloquy, this aside that God is having with himself and maybe the other two companions comes to an end. And God says out loud so that Abraham might hear, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done it, done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. Okay, why does God say that? 
Why does God say that? Maybe an even better question, why does God have to scout things out? Doesn't he already know what's going on in these cities? Of course he does. And he's already said, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? So God already knows what's going on there. He already knows where this is going. But by saying to Abraham, by saying out loud to him that he is heading to Sodom to scout things out, what that does functionally in that moment is create an opportunity to create an invitation for Abraham to intercede, to step into that purpose of being the nation through whom other nations are connected to God. In this text, we see this really this beautiful combination of Abraham as a prophet and Abraham as a priest. Uh, A prophet as one who is given knowledge about the workings of God and then who responds in turn. And a priest as one who seeks to mediate the blessings of God to the world. Intercession, which is prayer pleading on behalf of other people, intercession lives at that intersection of prophet and priest. So if your impression, and there's, there's hard accounts of God's judgment in the Old Testament. If your impression in reading those accounts, they're hard to read, I understand that. If your impression is that God is a merciless destroyer, and that Abraham is the truly compassionate one, and he's the one stepping in to try to hold back God's anger, then we need to see in this text that God himself first invites and calls upon Abraham to be a, a righteous and just presence in the world, and then to speak up on behalf of the world. Now, you and I are not all prophets. You and I are not all priests uh, like Abraham. But the church, the people of God, is a prophetic and a priestly community. And it's been established by Jesus to carry out this prophetic and priestly work in the world. So Titus chapter 2 says that Jesus gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. And in 1 Peter, it says that we've become a kingdom of priests, that once we were not a people, but now we are a people, and that the reason that we are a people is to to declare the excellencies of God, the one who called us out of darkness and into his glorious light. Those of us who put our faith in Jesus have this same privilege of being counted among the people of God. And like we see with Abraham, part of that privilege is that we get an insider scoop into the story of the world. So it's not that you and I know all the specifics. It's not that you and I know how exactly God is going to act in a given time and place in history. But we do know and we're certain of the big picture realities of the story of the world. That God is reconciling the world to himself in Jesus. That all rebellion against God that has happened since the fall of humanity into sin, that that will one day come to an end. That it will either come to an end by reconciliation or by judgment against those who persist in rebellion. Like Abraham, God has not withheld the story from his prophetic and priestly people. And if this is the story of the world, the question for us is, well, should we not act, should we not pray accordingly? That God would reconcile those who live in opposition to him. Even when, maybe especially when it seems that they've already had their chance. At this point in the story, you could easily argue that Sodom has had its chance. That doesn't stop Abraham from interceding. Because if God will judge sin and God will judge sinners, what, should that not fuel in us a deep longing for their repentance, even as we have this deep longing in our own lives to repent and, and believe and be reconciled to God? Though you and I have no control to bring about anyone's repentance, God does call us to presence and to prayer. In terms of presence, think of it this way because we are the people of God, our conduct matters. 
Holiness in our conduct, righteousness, justice in our conduct matters. And most of the time, those words kind of ping on our radar as kind of this legalistic, holier-than-thou kind of perspective. That's not what I'm talking about. Your conduct matters because your conduct isn't just about yourself. Of course, it matters in your own relationship and how you uh, relate to God. It also matters because it's not just about you. That, that, That our pursuit of righteousness and justice in the world, that distinct character that that kind of life displays is part of what it means to be the prophetic and priestly people in in our time and place. It's part of what it means to love the world because the world needs to see a better way, namely the better way that is the way of the Lord. And that's why in 1 Peter 2, Peter goes on to recount Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, "'Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, "'so that when they speak against you as evildoers, "'they may see your good deeds.'" And glorify God on the day he visits us. In terms of prayer, because God has called upon Abraham, Abraham calls upon God. And that's the second part of this passage. So second, let's kind of shift gears and talk more about that. What is the character of Abraham's intercession in Genesis 18? We step back and we look and we see here it's missional. It's rooted in God's own character, and it's humbly persistent. It's missional, it's rooted in God's own character, and it's humbly persistent. So in the Old Testament, it's very common, actually, to see prophets call upon God and intercede for the people. Uh, Moses does this after the fiasco with the golden calf. He intercedes and pleads on behalf of the people. Samuel does this when the people have rejected God's kingship and they want a human king for themselves. Jeremiah does this in the face of impending destruction in Jerusalem and then the subsequent exile into Babylon. But the major difference between those examples and Abraham in Genesis 18 is that Abraham here, he's not interceding for his own people. He's interceding not for God-fearing people, but he's interceding for pagan Canaanite people. And certainly some of that has got to be influenced by the fact that his nephew Lot is living there in the city of Sodom among the people of Sodom. But he doesn't mention Lot. He doesn't mention Lot's family anywhere in this intercession. He asked God to spare the entire city. And so Abraham's intercession serves a missional purpose. It's about loving not just his own family, his own people, people that are like him. It's about loving the world. His intercession is also rooted in God's own character. God has called and chosen Abraham with a missional purpose. And we read that here in this text as God kind of recounts who Abraham is. Abraham will be blessed, and through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so when God then calls upon Abraham and tells him what he's about to do and creates this opportunity, Abraham really, all he's doing in that moment is just stepping right into the design of God. From the outset, it's not that God's people have a mission. It's that the mission of God has a people. So notice then how Abraham prays in ways that appeal to God's own missional and just and merciful character. Verse 25, he says, Far be it from you, the just God of the universe, to treat the righteous and the wicked the same way. Like, far be that from you. You don't do that. You don't treat the righteous and the wicked the same way. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Any of these passages about God's judgment, as I mentioned, they're difficult, and we have to acknowledge that up front. But it's complicated precisely because we serve a God who is completely just and completely merciful 
in a way that, that for us in our limitedness, even as we struggle and strive to comprehend that, we just can't comprehend that. And it's easy in, in these chapters to really see God as the just judge. But don't miss the mercy of God that is all over this text. For one, as we just mentioned, God has established a missional people to plead back to him on behalf of the world. For another, he's, gonna, he's going to judge Sodom, he says, because the outcry of the victims of oppression have come to his ears. The, the victims of murder, the victims of rape, the victims of all kinds of oppression have come to his ears. And ever since Cain murdered Abel earlier in the book of Genesis, the blood of victims cry out to God for justice. And when God responds in justice, what he's doing in that very same moment is mercifully putting an end to ongoing suffering at the hands of those same oppressors. For another, another evidence of God's mercy here. As we've seen, even though God already knows what's going on in Sodom, he still reveals himself as the one who will go down and investigate to make sure. He, doesn't, he does not bring justice as kind of a, a, a knee-jerk, rash reaction. And then, as Abraham pleads with him, as he kind of negotiates with him, that reveals God's willingness to prioritize mercy to the few, the few remaining righteous, over judgment against the many more wicked. And so when Abraham asks God here to be merciful, to be just, he's not asking God to be anything other than what he already is. And he's not asking God to do anything other than what God already does. He's appealing to God's own nature and God's own character. So he calls upon God. It's missional. It's rooted in God's own character. Lastly, it's humbly persistent. Throughout this interaction, Abraham remembers that he is not God, and he remembers who he's talking to. He's God's creation. He's dust and ashes, and he asks God to be patient with him in these persistent pleas. But in, in that, in his humility, he is boldly and doggedly persistent. It's common in, in biblical texts and biblical literature to see threefold repetition. Abraham doubles that. Six requests simultaneously, whittling that number of righteous persons needed all the way down to ten. Now here's how Abraham's example applies to, to our lives, the implications that it has for our lives. Called by God, we call upon God. That's, that's not just true for Abraham and his descendants, but for you and I as part of Jesus' church. Jesus purifies a people for himself, and then as the author of Hebrews says, he lives to make intercession for us. And so as Jesus intercedes for us, as he continually pleads the merits of his finished work on our behalf, we become those who intercede for the life of the world. We pray missionally, just as Abraham did. So if, if praying for the world... If praying for those who have rejected God is not part of your life, then I would urge you to ask, where's the disconnect? Where's the disconnect? I'm so grateful that Jesus' attitude toward me is not the attitude of that donor toward the men and women of France. Right? What if Jesus had decided that I had had my chance? What if Jesus had decided that, that my forefathers, my, my family members who in the past have, be, have become Christians, what if he decided they had had their chance? Or back it all the way up even to the history of humanity, the beginning of the history of humanity, what if God decided that people who kept making a mess of God's good creation had had enough chances? If God had the, the mercy and patience and compassion that I have, he would have called it quits in Genesis 3. But instead, he carries it all the way and then beyond 
to John chapter 3, because he so loved the world, he sends Jesus. So who are the individuals, or who are the groups of people that you've given up on in your life? Who you've concluded that they've had their chance, and it's now time for you to move on. Maybe it's not France for you. Maybe it's the Muslim world. Uh, maybe it's people who, who show up on the news as, as some kind of terrorist group or something like that. I don't, whatever it is for you, whoever you've concluded that these people have had their chance and it's time to move on, remember that Abraham pleaded for Sodom and pray missionally. Pray also in line with the character of God. And here's just a little bit that I'll say about that this morning. Sometimes, and I'm sure you can resonate with this, sometimes God's justice won't feel merciful. And other times, God's mercy won't feel just. So sometimes you'll stand back in a situation, you will want God to bring down the hammer on the oppressors of our world. Other times, you will want God to extend even one more chance, even one more opportunity for mercy for someone. And if that's you, you have camaraderie because ever since the history of humanity, we relate and are known by and know a God who is simultaneously merciful and just at the same time. So we'll always struggle with these things. In Scripture, sometimes people plead for God's mercy. That's Abraham in Genesis 18. Other times, people plead for God's justice. And if you read the Psalms, David does that with some violence occasionally. And he laments very regularly in Psalms, why are all of the wicked people thriving And why are all the righteous people suffering? Like, what is just about that? So in your prayers, as you plead with God, when God's justice doesn't feel merciful, plead his mercy. And when God's mercy doesn't feel like justice, plead his justice. But in all of it, remember that you aren't trying to convince God to be anything other than what he already is. And then, in these missional character of God-driven prayers. Prevail upon God. Persist with humility, but with boldness. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable about an unjust judge who eventually is just worn down by the persistent pleading of a widow. And Jesus says, even if if an unrighteous judge like that will eventually give justice, how much more will the God who is already righteous and just? And the whole purpose of the parable Luke tells us is that Jesus is calling his followers always to pray and never to lose heart. So wear down God with the persistence of your prayers. Close with this. People of God, people of God in this room, in this time and place, our world needs your presence. It needs your righteous and just conduct. And our world needs your prayers. God's mission has a people, and in this time and place, that is you and that is me. You've been given an insider view into the story of God. So act and pray in line with that story. And because God has so loved the world in Jesus, because Jesus lives to make intercession for us, may our faith in Jesus always be a faith that loves the world. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. God, you, um, you work and act in ways that we don't understand or comprehend. But we see your mercy and we see your justice, even in certain situations when it feels like like we want the opposite of what's happening. And so we cry out to you, help us see our own need for mercy and our own need for justice to come into this world, and that Jesus is our only answer for both of those things. And we pray this morning, God, that you would stir up in us more love for the world, 
more love for those who are not like us, more love for those, especially for whatever reason, who we feel like have already had their chance, don't deserve another one, and we should move on. Wherever we find that in our heart, remind us of the unbelievable, inexhaustible well of your mercy that you have poured out through the work of Christ. And may we again drink from that inexhaustible well even now as we come to this table. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.